Cleanse me, O Lord, of my secret faults. The 19th Psalm, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder if you know what it feels like to be utterly consumed by resentment. The kind of resentment that leads you to relish bitterness because it feels like it's nursing a wound. Or to dwell in anger because you feel like your pain entitles you to it. Or to nurture a grievance because you've been victimized and you feel powerless to do anything but be outraged. Resentment is a drug for those who have been or who have perceived themselves to be wronged. It dulls suffering, it distracts, it provides the illusion of healing. Resentment projects pain onto an enemy so that we do not have to confront it. Resentment feels great, but it is bad soul care. So I wonder what you resent. A career that hasn't turned out the way you hoped? Or an institution that failed you? Or a friend who betrayed you or let you down? Or a health burden that God seems indifferent about or deaf to your prayers? A church you feel is too reactionary or too compromising? A culture you feel alienated by, an injustice you can't endure, a world you've come to hate because you think it hates you. Where does your resentment come from? Resentment is sweet, but once it's indulged, it is very difficult to root out of our imaginations. Like I said, resentment is a drug. It gives euphoric highs leaving us to desire and consume more and more, its pleasures blinding us to the obvious reality that it is killing us. So the quotation often attributed to St. Augustine is undoubtedly true, that resentment is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Resentment plunges us so far into the darkest recesses of our hearts, the parts of ourselves and our memories and our imaginations most hidden from and removed from God, that we feast on the poison of self-delusion and hatred and bitterness and self-righteousness and self-pity to the point of devouring our very selves. Resentment is a hell of a drug. Here's the most alarming and disturbing thing. We don't, for the most part, take the sin of resentment that seriously. In part, that's simply a further consequence of resentment itself. We think we're entitled to it. We've been hurt or mistreated or wronged, and so we think the one thing that we do deserve is to cling to resentment. After all, how bad can that be? We're the victims here, aren't we? But our readings from sacred scripture this morning paint a much different portrait of the moral and spiritual dangers 
of resentment. Indeed, the Christian theological tradition as a whole has rightly discerned that resentment is among the deadliest of vices. It corrupts virtue and cuts us off from grace. Resentment kills. Indeed, this is what we find in our reading from the book of Numbers this morning, a people so full of resentment and bitterness and anger that they are just about ready to call it quits and return to their lives of subjection and servitude in Egypt. Better to be slaves with a buffet of good food, they reason, than liberated people that are dependent on God for nourishment. So the people of Israel, we read, they weep at the door of Moses' tent, complaining and crying out because of their lack of dietary diversity. There is nothing at all but this manna, they say. Give us meat that we may eat. People are being driven out of their minds by this strong craving, as the writer puts it. They become delusional and begin inventing fabricated memories of those supposed good old days in Egypt where the meat was plenty and the fish was free and the fruits and vegetables were fresh and abundant. Of course, this is all a myth, nostalgia for a past that never was. Taskmasters do not give meat to their slaves to eat, and oppressors hardly care for the nutrition of their oppressed. But no matter, right? Because the Israelites are not thinking rationally. They're being driven by fantasies and wishful thinking, both of which are generated by a deep, sensuous desire for the kinds of food that God has not given and an even deeper resentment toward the sustenance God has. The old-fashioned word for that kind of behavior, this irrational action motivated by uncontrolled bodily desire and sensual gratification, is intemperance. Resentment about food has led Israel to reject temperance and self-control. And what's more, the people's lack of temperance is distorting their memory their vision of the past. Their remembrance of the nature of Egypt's slavery is revisionary and fabricated. And this lie, this self-deception born of intemperance leads them to forget that most basic fact of their history that God liberated them, delivered them in order to live with him in freedom and fidelity. But resentment has distorted Israel's vision of the past, her memory, and is quite literally driving her mad. Now Moses is not much better off in all this. Resentment has struck him in a different but equally severe way. The people's complaining has driven him to the brink, and so he confronts God angrily. Why have you dealt ill with your servant? He asked, and why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Moses' frustration about the unfaithfulness of his people is redirected to God, whom he accuses of punishing him with the burden 
of leadership. What was given to Moses as a great gift at Sinai to the vocation of leading God's people into freedom is now interpreted as a judgment, as cruelty. And like the people whose resentment burns hot like a fever clouding their judgment, Moses can't think straight either. Like a child throwing a tantrum, he rages at God, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once. Better to die than suffer this burden. So if the people's resentment distorts their vision of the past, then Moses's corrupts his vision of the present. He cannot see God's providence or provision at work. Where am I to get meat for all the people, he complains, as if God wasn't the one steadfastly providing manna and quail this whole time. He cannot see God's presence and power at work in his leadership. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me, he says, as if God was not the one miraculously working through Moses this whole time. Moses' resentment toward God about his position and vocation have resulted in a distortion, in a distorted vision of his present. He sees himself as totally alone in the role of mediating and ruling this unruly people. So the people prefer slavery to freedom if it means not satiating their every desire, but Moses prefers death to serving God if it means not if it means having responsibility for God's people in their unfaithfulness. Or put differently, and again to use a kind of old-fashioned word, Moses lacks fortitude, courage. His resentment has displaced, corrupted, the fortitude necessary to lead God's people. A courage that was and is premised on a deep faith in God's abiding power and presence. But rather than living and leading boldly in courage and faith, Moses shirks responsibility. But God is merciful And he responds to Moses' complaints by helping him out, appointing 70 leaders from among the people to serve as judges alongside Moses and to share leadership responsibility. God takes some of his own spirit that was given to Moses to lead and puts it on these elders who then prophesy. But this only leads to more problems, more resentment, because two elders who are not present at this meeting yet receive the gift of the Spirit and begin to prophesy in the camp. And so furious, Joshua, the assistant, approaches Moses, begging him to make them stop. We're not told why Joshua is so upset, but he clearly seems to sense some unfairness in God's gift of his Spirit to these undeserving elders. They missed the meeting after all. They didn't show up to the vestry meeting on time. Perhaps our reading from St. Mark's Gospel can illuminate why Joshua is so angry. Here, 
and Mark, in a parallel story, we're told that John, one of Jesus' disciples, approaches Jesus, upset about someone outside the twelve who is casting out demons in Jesus' name. We tried to stop him, John says, because he was not following us. Not following us? Who is this us you're speaking about, John, we want to ask? Wasn't the whole point that we're all following him, namely Jesus? What do you mean us? Who's us? And who is the them, the outsider, the opponent implied in your construal of this in-group of Jesus's? Jesus's response, of course, is to confuse, to blur, to redraw the lines of who even counts as one of us and one of them. For the one who is not against us, he says, is for us. The temptation to draw narrow boundary markers around an us, us faithful, us intelligent, us orthodox, us on the right side of history, it's a constant temptation of those who follow Christ. Because here's the thing, we always seem to draw those lines wide enough that we manage to fit in every time, but narrow enough that all of our enemies seem to conveniently fall outside. We should be very suspicious about our capacity to define us, whoever us is. And not just because doing so is so often self-serving and an act of pride, but because doing so is usually a manifestation of deep-seated, unaddressed resentment. Look again at Joshua's complaint. He is upset that these two who were not at his meeting of the elders, who don't belong to the in-group, the us, who are not doing things the right way, have nevertheless become recipients of God's grace. God's spirit exceeds, overflows the formal institutional restraints that Joshua set up, and this drives Joshua crazy. Too many prophets, he seems to fear. If they have the spirit to prophesy and to lead, then that must take away from my authority and power, right? Joshua is jealous. He resents the unboundedness of God's work and God's gifts. He resents the way that God has chosen to distribute leadership and authority and his spirit. Do you know what opposition to God's wise distribution of gifts and goods is called? It's called injustice. Joshua's resentment is of God's just and generous giving of gifts. He seems to fear that God's gift of the Spirit is a scarce good, that if God gives some to them, there's less for me. But God's Spirit is not quantifiable. It's not that kind of gift. It's the kind of gift that multiplies when it's spread rather than Diminishing like a flame spread from candle to candle, God's spirit goes out without depletion. Would that all God's people 
or prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them, Moses says. But Joshua's misapprehension of God's justice, driven by resentment, has led him to a fundamental distortion of his vision of God. So resentment distorts our vision of the past, of the present, of God. It leads us to idolize pleasure, to shirk responsibility for others, to lament rather than celebrate the radical generosity of God. Resentment corrupts temperance, stifles fortitude, distorts justice, and so disables any kind of prudence or wise discernment. Resentment kills. It kills virtue and goodness and destroys holiness. Nietzsche was not far off when he criticized the pseudo-Christian morality of his day as nothing but resentment masking itself as virtue. An ethics of resentment, he called it. Nietzsche actually perceives something deeply biblical, even if he didn't realize it, that resentment totally destroys true virtue. Now, he himself thought that was because true virtue is founded on vitality and strength, fearlessness, and self-assertion, and resentment was an evasion of these. But a better and more faithfully Christian reason why resentment is so corrupting, so distorting of virtue is simply this. Resentment deprives us of love, of giving it and receiving it. As St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, the kind of anger that resentment is, is actually a sin against charity itself. And insofar as resentment prevents and precludes charity from taking root in our souls, it chokes off the source and form of all virtue. As St. Paul says, without love, I am nothing. To put it differently, resentment is so deadly because it is directly opposed to grace. Because the one thing resentment prohibits is to receive a gift, the grace of God's charity. And without grace, without charity, we suffocate. We clench our fists so tightly in anger and resentment that we cannot receive God's gifts. So I wonder if you know that kind of resentment. I do. I know it very well. I know what it feels like to be consumed by it, to relish bitterness because it feels like it's nursing a wound, to dwell in anger because I feel like my pain entitles me to it, to nurture a grievance because I've been victimized and left powerless. I know, and I know that this kind of resentment kills. It destroys. But there is an antidote to the poison of resentment. It's grace. It's God's gracious gift of charity 
lavished upon us in spite of our resentment and our hostility and our ingratitude, which actually overcomes and disarms them if we allow it to. And the healing balm of grace has actually already been given to us. And it will be given to us again this morning in this sacrament. But in order to take it, in order to receive this medicinal grace to be healed of the resentment that's killing and ruining our souls, we have to unclench our fists. We have to open up our hands and let our palms lie bare. And that means letting go, giving up our resentments. And that is really hard. But the first step to the kind of freedom that lies beyond resentment is to simply pray. Pray, even now, that God would grant you the grace to let go of deathly resentments. Pray that God would soften your heart and open your hands that when you come forward this morning to receive Christ himself, there's nothing else in your hands. They're open to receive everything he's given you and receive the grace and healing of God's charity and mercy and be thankful because the sovereign Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.